A great philosopher of the internet once said, Always be yourself. Unless you can be Batman. Always be Batman. While neither of us are Terry McGinnis and will likely never be Batman, we can live vicariously through him in his many comic adventures. Welcome to Bat Books for Beginners. Welcome to Bat Books for Beginners. My name is Dylan. And my name is John. This will be episode 148 covering Batman Hush. If you're new to the show, we're going to discuss things we didn't like about the story followed by things we did like. But first, we have Education Alley. All right. In this set of stories, in issue 608, we have a reference to Nails Nathan, one of uh, Killer Croc's guards. Nails Nathan is a character from the 1931 film The Public Enemy who is kicked to death by a horse. The character is based on a soldier in World War I named Samuel Jules Nails Morton, and Morton received the Croix de Guerre decoration from the French Republic. After the war, he joined Dino Banyan's Northside Gang in Chicago, and he was part of that organization until his death in 1923 by the horse that we mentioned earlier. We also have Tommy Harper, who was a professional baseball player from 1962 to 1976 and was the first player to bat for the expansion Seattle Pilots. In 1969, their only year in Seattle before they moved to Milwaukee and became the Brewers. And since he was the leadoff man for that team, he was also the first to bat for the Milwaukee Brewers. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, that, that's one of those um, little tidbits of information we up here in the Northwest know that there was a team in Seattle before the Mariners, <laughs> but only for that one year, and then they became the Milwaukee Brewers. Uh, in issue 609, we have Oracle mentioning uh, Chandra Kinsolving, who healed Batman's back after Nightfall. So that's a good reference there, back to a story that we've we've covered uh, on Arc Reactions, not here. And that uh, they say she got better, which is interesting. All right, in uh, 613, we have Verdi, Puccini, and Leon Calva- Calveiro. Leon Cavallo. Leon Cavallo, opera. Verdi composed 37 operas from 1839 to 1893 and has five of the opera-based top 20 performed operas of present day. La Traviata tops the list with 659 performances between 2013 and 2014. Puccini has three operas in the opera-based list, La Boheme, Tosca, and Turandot. He has been called the greatest composer of Italian opera since Verdi, but he is not without controversy. Puccini's composition of La Boheme was the subject of a public dispute between Puccini and fellow composer Ruggiero Leoncavallo. In early 1893, the two composers discovered that they were both engaged in writing operas based on Merger's work. Leoncavallo had started his work first, and he and his music publisher claimed they had claimed to have priority on the subject, although Merger's work was in the public domain at the time. Puccini responded that he started his own work without having any knowledge of Leon Cavallo's project and wrote, Let him compose, I will compose, the audience will decide. Puccini's opera premiered a year before Leon Cavallo's and has been a perennial audience favorite while Leon Cavallo's version of the story was quick to fade into obscurity. And uh, speaking of Leon Cavallo, he only had one opera in the top 20 list, but it was Pagliacci. 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 Which yeah. is a really, really well-known one. It is, and he spent a lot of his career trying to get out of the shadow of that opera. Like That was one of his earlier works, and it he kind of got pigeonholed. That's kind of a bummer. 
All right, we also have uh, Harley Quinn exclaiming, Heavens to Murgatroyd. This is a catchphrase of Snagglepuss, a Hanna-Barbera cartoon character. He was a pink cat that appeared in the Yogi Bear show in the 1960s. The phrase is a takeoff of the phrase, Heavens to Betsy, and is used as an exclamation of surprise. We're not sure if Murgatroyd is a reference to a particular person or not, but the name can be traced back to English aristocracy. In his genealogy, Bill Murgatroyd states that in 1371, a constable was appointed to the district of Worley in Yorkshire. He adopted the name Johannes de Murgatroyd, literally John of Moorgate Road. Yeah, Royd, it's Moorgate Road. The district leading to the moor. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. That's weird, yeah. It doesn't... I mean, the, the article I was reading says it doesn't pertain to the... the statement or the the exclamation but i mean I've, someone I, with the same name it's yeah. a little I, I i knew of snagglepuss but i didn't know like yeah i'd heard that phrase but i didn't know it came from snagglepuss oh so yeah that that was interesting to me in issue 615 we have bruce reading oh captain my captain at tommy elliott's funeral this is a poem by walt whitman and he composed the poem after abraham lincoln's assassination in 1865 the poem is classified as an elegy or mourning poem and was written to honor Abraham Lincoln, the 16th president of the United States. It was also in the um, movie Dead, Pres- or Dead, Dead Poet Poets? Society, yeah, Robin Williams' film, which is a phenomenal film. And that was probably my introduction to it, because I've seen that film. Oh, yeah. Well, one of the few films John's seen. Oh, yeah, only a few. <laughs> All right. The splash pages of the Batmobiles, and this is one I spotted and uh, shared with John, since John's definitely the car guy. John, you uh, you you mentioned one I didn't notice, which is the Batman Forever car and the Batman and Robin Batmobile. They're both in there. Yeah, there I noticed the Batman sixty six uh, vehicle and the animated series as well as several comic book iterations. Yeah, there there's ten or fifteen in that splash page. Easily, um, yeah. I don't think it covers all of them, but it covers a good majority of them. Which was kind of a cool little Easter egg of sorts. Yeah, and then that snarky comment by uh, Dick. Uh, which one? Yeah, and then you see all of them. Yeah. Um, we have the also in that issue we have the Sheldon Park sign. Sheldon Moldoff was an artist at DC Comics who lived from 1920 to 2012 and is known for being one of Bob Kane's shadow artists. He created the characters Poison Ivy, Mister Freeze, the Matt Hagen Clayface, Batmite, Batwoman, and also Ace the Bathound. Because we needed more dog comp- dog versions. Hey, of hey, hey! Don't don't be dissing on Ace the Bathound. I'm dissing on or crypto. crypto. I'm dissing on crypto. All right, and then we also have Adam Street, which is an homage to Neil Adams, who worked with Denny O'Neill on many DC comics in the 1970s, including Batman, and they are credited with creating Man-Bat and Raish al Ghul. Um, in issue 618, we have Jason Todd, which was really Clayface in disguise, referencing The Purloined Letter by Edgar Allan Poe. The Purloined Letter is a short story published by Poe in 1844. It is considered one of the important early forerunners of the modern detective story. We also have Infantino Parkway and Mazzucchelli Drive. Carmine Infantino drew for DC Comics in the 50s into the 80s and worked on Batman in the 1960s. He's crea- he is credited with creating Batgirl as well as the first blockbuster character. Uh, that would be named Blockbuster. Oh, gotcha. First, yeah. He was also editorial director for DC Comics starting in 1967. David Mazzucchelli is most known for his work with Frank Miller on Batman Year One and Daredevil Born Again. In uh, issue 619, we have Gardner Freeway. Now, Gardner Fox wrote detective comics between 1939 and 1968. 
He is credited with co-creating Martha and Thomas Wayne, Batgirl, Blockbuster, The Clue Master with Infantino, and many more. Yeah, those last three were with uh, Carmen Infantino. He, he was credited with Batgirl and Blockbuster as well as Clue Master. Sweet. So, uh, yeah, there you go. Now we're going to move on into the talking points. And as always, we come to the bad things first. All right, the first thing that we wanted to touch on, and I really was hoping that this would be subtle enough or minor enough that we wouldn't have to bring it up, but the artwork. Um, There are some very sexualized and unrealistic female poses in this story, as well as uh, super muscled male physiques, which people talk about less, but does usually go hand to hand with the uh, sexualized and uh, unrealistic female poses. Some of the things we're talking about with those sexualized and unrealistic female poses, there's a lot of twisted uh, boob and butt shots that spines just don't plain don't do that the most egregious one i found was the harley quinn one in a big splash where i i don't i don't think harley quinn has a spine yeah i didn't notice that one specifically but there were a couple others that were uh the same type of thing that i did notice and and made me uh think think to put it in um there was one particular shot that stood out to me which was uh huntress getting back on a on her motorcycle and it's framed in in just the right way to really highlight her butt. Yeah, it was really egregious and really gross. I mean, it's just like, okay, do do we really need this? Is this? It, it was very clearly. Uh, it was very nineties. Yeah, this is an early. Age. This is an early two thousand story, so it's it's probably the tail end of of what we generally consider most egregious in the nineties. So I'm not sure if it's just we haven't quite. fully come out of that era and this is just the last remnant of it or if this is more of a throwback to the 90s uh, where this was more prevalent. And we're going to talk about that kind of tie to the 90s here in a little bit, I do believe. Talking about this as a primer. But in that same, you know, in the artwork we both really liked the Jason Todd outfit that they had Clayface in. It was really cool. It was really neat looking. It was very very stylized in, in a very neat way. Yeah, it was mostly black with like red highlights, like red piping, and um, I thought that was a really good look for for the character, and that would have been something that I think would have fit, fit uh, Red Hood uh, when Jason Todd takes on that persona um, if they had decided to keep that. Yeah, so I mean, you know, it's not very often we talk about the artwork unless it is absolutely amazing or absolutely egregiously bad. And I think this is definitely falling in the latter category for the most part. Um, but that really is the only f- uh, completely bad thing that we have to say uh, about the story. Um, there are a couple other points that are that are more neutral um, where we have some good and bad, but that was really the only completely bad point that we had. So we're going to move on to the good things here. And Batman nearly killing Joker is a good point, oddly enough. Yeah, we get an exploration of the topic we have discussed in before of should the Batman kill the Joker, and we discussed whether it was irresponsible for the Batman to allow the Joker to continue living. I mean, they they we've talked about it, but what I like is the story uh, acknowledges it and talks about it um, in in this one that we're covering here, Batman Hush. Uh, I think there's a line by Dick about. Well, we're going to put him in in Arkham, and hopefully he can stay there for more than 90 minutes this time. So, I mean, they they really do acknowledge the problem there of keeping incarcerating this character who can so easily break out at any point. Yeah, so, I mean, it's we did have, and this was kind of cool, having Catwoman try to stop him, knowing that he's acting out of character. It's something that, you know, 
you have a character who's played both sides of the law, both as a villain and a hero of sorts, who is saying, hey, you know, it's something that we've encountered with Jim Gordon before, something we've encountered with Superman, I believe, before stopping him from killing the Joker. Yeah, I mean, ultimately it is Gordon who is able to talk Batman off the ledge and, and get him to come to his senses. But with Catwoman, she's she makes a really good point of saying that if this was me, you would be stopping me, so I'm going to try and stop you. Yeah, which you know ties into the relationship that we're getting with them. And uh, we'll definitely be talking more about that yes. later. And so this... Why do you think this is a moment that Batman nearly killed the Joker? Why would Batman nearly cho- choose this time to nearly kill the Joker? Honestly, I I think this is that's about the only bad point I have with with this uh, being in this story is that it it seems a little out of character to me for how we've been uh, reading Batman in this era that this would be the moment where he goes over the over the edge and um, is ready to kill the Joker. It seems like there's a number of other points that would have been more fitting for, for this piece to be placed in there. As much as I like that they're they're addressing it, it did seem a little weird in this story to me. Yeah, I mean, so so some context here is that Batman believes that Joker killed Thomas Elliot, right? Like, Yes, that that is the point where this comes up, yeah. So, I mean, on one hand, you have the guy who just saved... Bruce Wayne's life and an old childhood friend. And you factor in the fact that, and we learned this at the end, which is a point I didn't like, that somehow Thomas Elliot put in uh, subliminal messages. Yes. So, which is, yeah, that's something that could easily fit in the uh, bad parts of the story, but we're going to talk about it in the convoluted part, or in the other discussion area about how convoluted the story was. So, I mean, it could. You could almost say that it was because uh, uh, Elliot wanted to have that happen. He wanted uh, Batman to snap. See, I, I, that didn't even occur to me. But yeah, that that's an interesting interesting element to that that I hadn't considered. Hey, so yeah, it's one of those like it could be because this is all Thomas Elliot's, you know, machinations. The only thing I can think of that would kind of sort of justify it, and even then it's extremely weak, is that having the subliminals and using the subliminal messaging to tie Elliot to uh, Bruce Wayne's mind. Yeah, and like like you said, when we get to the, the convoluted story, we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit more. Um, another piece that's in there is that Batman has become a bit obsessive over Catwoman, and he's allowing that romance to change some of his behaviors, in my opinion. See, at least I at least that's what I was getting out of this story. I I don't think that's so out of character for it it can be. It all depends unfortunately this is one of those situations with who who it depends who's writing him and what the story they're going for because a character that's been around since 1939ish, right? yeah, 1940s is going to be, you know, someone who's had a million different personalities over a million different writers. But yeah, I I think this is uh for the character we're given, having him be so obsessive seems a little off for him. I mean, the obsessive part, not really, but it's what he chooses to be obsessive about. Like, he, he's not really obsessive about his relationships as much as he is about his villains and 
you know, know, knowing what's going on in a city to me. I mean, I, I agree. And that's what I was kind of alluding to. I didn't okay. I guess I didn't state it very clearly that, yeah, it, it seems very peculiar. It seems a bit out of character for Batman to be obsessive over Catwoman in this, in the way that he is. Yeah. So that, that's really all, all for that point. So we'll move on to the next one here, which that this story is a Batman primer. And while I was reading through it the first time, I wasn't liking how much varied things it was covering, but a- after looking back on it and reading through it a second time, it really does work to give you an introduction to a lot of key things in Batman's history and kind of give you a, a quick synopsis of them. You have Ra's al Ghul, the origin story for Batman, Dick and Jason's backstory, Oracle's backstory. You even have a little history between Jim Gordon and Batman, as well as the Joker, and introducing a lot of the key villains. Like Croc, uh, Poison Ivy, uh, who, who else do we have introduced in there? Uh, a ton of villains. Uh, oh, uh, Superman, Harley Quinn, Riddler, Two-Face, Talia al Ghul, or Talia Head in this case, uh, Scarecrow, Jason Todd. Uh, Mudman. Uh, Clayface? Clayface, thank you. Couldn't think of his name. I was struggling to think of Clayface for some reason. Yeah, I, it's a ton of villains get introduced in this, and even as just minor parts, which when you get to the conclusion that it was ultimately uh, Thomas Elliot manipulating everyone, Thomas Elliot who hasn't been in Gotham in who knows how long, somehow able to move in and immediately manipulate uh, all these villains and and uh, independent actors, it doesn't, you know. Was it him or was it Riddler? Uh, you know, that's a good question, and, and that's something that's kind of unclear at the end to me, at least. Yeah, and that's something we could talk about in the next point here, which we're going to cover the convoluted story as far as who is really behind everything. Yeah. But this is a great primer. This is a great... If someone wants to become a Batman reader or someone's interested in getting into Batman, you could hand them this story and say, here, this is going to give you a ton of information. Right, and then based on whatever part of that they found the most interesting, you could recommend which story those pieces came from so they could go back and read in more detail about that particular point, or they could just continue from this point forward and have a a pretty decent foundation for yeah. future Batman stories. Yeah, I mean, this would be a good one to get a new reader introduced to Batman and a feel for all the different players and characters that come in and out. Yeah, exactly. All right, so let's talk about this story. Oh. This convoluted story. So the story moves along pretty well for the first 10 issues, I feel. It's the last two that get kind of crazy. Yeah, it's really... I mean, we're, we're kept in the dark uh, pretty much until the very last reveal, which is kind of the opposite of what we're given, which is the purloined letter. Now, I don't want to say that you know keeping us in the dark is necessarily a bad thing, especially in the age we live in where spoilers are rife and populous and hard to avoid for anything. But have, the way they kept us in the dark made the story feel it, – it moved at a decent pace, but it felt like it completely came unraveled towards the end and that everything that was kind of being built towards was completely you know, for naught. I mean, this is not my favorite type of mystery. Um, I like the mysteries where they give you all the clues, and if you can put it together, you can get ahead of it. Um, not necessarily trying to get you to put it together, but just they put it there in such a way that if you are looking to put it together, you can. If you're not, you can just go along for the ride. And this is not that type of a story because the reveals 
are set up in such a way that we really truly are in the dark until the author has the whatever character point out, hey, you see how this relates to this other thing, but I didn't give you all the pieces to put it together yourself. Well, one could say in argument that that is kind of what Batman, we are put in the shoes of Batman in this, that he is only finding out information as he finds it out. As good as a detective Batman is, whoever, whoever did this did their homework. Yeah, it's definitely a style, stylistic choice, and it is a, a valid way to tell a story. It's just not my favorite when there's a mystery. Understandable, but I, I kind of appreciate the fact that we are kept in the dark because it puts us in the shoes in the perspective of Batman, who, for as great a detective as he is, someone's done their work. So his Moriarty uh, for this story has done such a good job that he doesn't discover who Moriarty is. Yes, I, I can. I can definitely see that, and I would say that the the story that we covered just two months ago, Dead Reckoning, did a much better job of showing us a villain who was very prepared and and managed to stay a couple steps ahead of of Batman um, than this story. But I think that that was the focus of that story, whereas it's not necessarily the entire focus of this story, as we pointed out by making this in such a way that it could be a, a primer-type story. Yeah. I feel like this one wasn't maybe necessarily as focused on the mystery as that one was. And I think that, you know, as you said, it's a completely valid, it's a, it's a matter of personal preference, but I, I can almost appreciate the way that this story was told in so much that we are supposed to be kept in suspense. It is not, oh, you could figure it out. No, you are stuck. You know, you don't know what's going to happen next, and neither does Batman. So you really get that... uh that perspective of being in the character and get sucked into the immersion of it, at least for me. And I'm not, you know, I'm not insulting your opinion or anything. I'm just saying for me, it was definitely a story that, while yes, it was convoluted, it definitely had a reason behind the convolution as opposed to a lot of stories. And yes, I think Dead Reckoning, if someone likes this story for the uh, the mystery, you should inter- definitely introduce them to Dead Reckoning because I think Dead Reckoning does a different type of, of uh, mystery but it has a better story to it. Yes, I, I, I 100% agree. And I agree with you that it is a matter of taste, and I preferred Dead Reckoning to this one. It sounds like maybe you preferred this one to Dead Reckoning. Honestly, I like I like them about the same. Okay. But I, I think that it, it's two different ways to tell a story from two totally different writers. So having... You know, two different two different types of stories being told is good for the diversity of the storytelling, and it allows someone to say, "Okay, I really like this." And these two yoke, uh, these two chuckleheads on Bat Books for Beginners are saying, "If you like this, check out this. Go read Dead Wrecking." Like, oh wow, this is you know, really good too. Yeah, definitely. Um, one thing that I didn't particularly care about with the uh, care for in this story was the multiple false reveals. It felt like it was a little too much for me because you get using Clayface to fake a couple of people. He's faking Tommy Elliot when um, we're to believe that Joker has killed him, and then we have the funeral that that was Clayface rather than Tommy Elliot. And then also we get it again with Jason Todd um, in, I think that's issue 11 of this story, issue 618 of of, uh, Batman. I, I think the problem comes from having a weird diversity of characters, of villains that Batman has. There's not really two shape-shifting uh, villains to use. Uh, it's not. It's not that I would have wanted those to be two different people. It's that I think the double false reveal of it's Jason Todd and then it's Hush and then it's Riddler is the part that that 
ultimately bothered me me the most. And then you also had the element that Clayface uh, faked Tommy Elliott as well as faking Jason Todd. I think I'm going to have to point back to my previous yeah, rant yeah. In, in on that same point. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'm just pointing out that that was a part that I, oh, yeah. I didn't care well, for. Well, that's what I'm saying. As a, as a uh, differing opinion, see previous statement <laughs> from me. All right, let's talk about some pieces that didn't quite make sense. So uh, Riddler somehow knew the details of Jason Todd's origin story and where the body was buried, or Tommy did, somebody did. Yeah, which is really bizarre considering that, you know, Riddler's not, he's not the information broker. You know, he's not the the character who would know those types of things. Now, mind you, he didn't know all the details because that's how Batman was able to suss out that it wasn't uh, actually Jason Todd. Right, because he fought a lot like uh, Dick, um, Dick Grayson, and... Um I think there was some other point that that I'm blanking he, on. He right didn't now. know Jason Todd's name. He didn't know Jason. No, he didn't know Jason Todd's background. Well, no, uh, Clayface didn't. Yeah, but whoever, uh, whether it was Tommy or it was Riddler, who had Clayface impersonate Jason Todd, they they had him show up at Jason's grave. They yeah. blew out the left front. Uh, wheel of the Batmobile, which is the wheel that Jason was was stealing. Yeah. In, in it. So I mean, there's there's pieces there that it's either Tommy or it's Riddler that knew that fed to Clayface, but didn't feed him the name. What, what's que- what's questionable here is let's assume just for the sake of giving the benefit of the doubt to the story that it was Tommy Elliot. It was Hush. How long has Hush been following and plotting his revenge on Bruce Wayne? How long has has he been plotting his revenge on to know that Bruce Wayne is Batman? Yeah, um, there's there's a fair point there. The other thing that I thought of in in relation to that is he did get to, um, oh gosh, what's his name? The guy that the guy in the cave that worked on the computers and the oh, cars. Oh, Harold. Harold. Yeah, he did get to Harold, and he did put that subliminal thing into the Bat computer. So plausibly he could have got that information from Batman's records. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that you know that's a good point. But yeah, it's just, I hadn't thought about that. That kind of I have to process that now, but yeah, it's one of those things where but how did he know about Harold? You know, it, there's a lot of threads that are never really uh resolved. And while this story definitely has results or has, you know, long-term effects that we'll discuss here in a bit, as some things that, you know, are left purposefully or unpurposefully unresolved. Um, one of the key things in there that it's dealt with in this story, but we really don't know what the ultimate purpose was, is that thing that was in Batman's neck, which was put in there um, when Tommy did his, his surgery on him, uh, on Bruce, early in in the story. Superman burns it out at the end, so it's no longer there, but we're never really led... I don't think we're given enough information to know what the ultimate goal for that device was. So I, I think I might have an inkling of a clue. And this relates back to the first or second issue with Killer Croc, who has a tracking device shoved between his fifth and sixth vertebrae by Batman while he's, you know, when he comes into Arkham. I think that's a similar thing. I think it's a tracking device. That's, that's how Tommy Elliot is always able to find him. We see Tommy Elliot, you know, keeping an eye on him for almost the entire story, quoting Aristotle. And that's what you know that's how he was able to do that to keep track of batman and kind of spy on him and get an idea where he is and you know what thinking back to that that could be how he discovered bruce wayne is batman i cuz he was keeping track of bruce wayne and he found batman well so the subliminal part was 
That that was Harold. Right. Harold put that into the computer so that when Hush uh, broke yeah. the line and Batman fell and needed surgery, he would call on Tommy Elliot, which would then allow him to put the device in his neck. So it him. seems to me like he should know well before that point that Batman is Bruce Wayne. That's very true. So the only thing I can think of is to keep track of where Batman is because he's trying to figure out a weakness in him. That and we saw that, uh, you know, th- throughout the story where he's keeping an eye on on Batman. So I think maybe the only thing I can think of is that one, it's a tracking device, and two, that's how he kept track of Batman the whole time and was always, you know, keeping a spy on him. I mean, th- that's a, that's definitely a possibility, um, and that makes some sense within the story. Uh, so if that's all it was, then okay, that's fine. I mean, the, it it doesn't need to. We don't need anything further on it, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so let's move on to our, our next point to talk about here, which is uh, Catwoman. Um, I feel like she's mad that her free will... Or, I'm sorry. I like that she's mad that her free will was taken away, even if what she did was in line with her past nature. And this comes up when um, Poison Ivy has something that allows her to control, Being control Poison people. Ivy. I mean, that's kind of been, you know, Poison Ivy's shtick is she can control people. Right, so when she uses it on Catwoman, Catwoman gets very upset about it. And I really did like that element of the story because, as I, as I said just a second ago, even though it's something she might possibly do, she didn't like having the choice taken away from her. Well, and she even says that, you know, nobody takes the choice away from me. Even if it's in line with my past, I decide to do it. And she uses that as a larger point for Batman, who's like, you know, kind of a domineering character, kind of a... Uh, controlling individual in you know with every aspect of his life as Batman that hey you don't get to control me either we're yeah. partners or we're nothing yeah and that's a really uh, good part of this story as well is that it very much breeds a contentious partnership that we see between her and Batman and as they're both trying to figure out exactly what's happening in this story um, you get all those those pieces that will uh, hopefully lead to a more interesting relationship between them than kind of the will-they-won't-they they that we've seen in a lot of the previous stories. Yeah, they, they kind of knock that out of the way, like, listen, this is going to happen, just accept it. But you did not like the idea of, or you've always just liked the Catwoman-Batman relationship. I always have, and it's mostly that will-they-won't-they they stuff that is um, a kind of a trapping of a lot of shows and stories and whatnot to build tension between two characters. They, they usually call it sexual tension. Um, where it's a kind of a back and forth and nothing ever really progresses. So I do like that this progressed to something at least. Yeah. Um, and it was done better than I kind of figured it would be when, if and when that eventually did happen. But you're right. It's one of those things where I've never really been a fan of it. I, it, I, I have a similar issue with the whole uh, Batman-Talia relationship because it's kind of the same thing. In a lot of ways. In a lot of ways, but also in a lot of ways, it's more won't they won't because she, even though she despises her father, he's using her as a machination to try and lure Bruce Wayne back into the Guild of Assassins. Yeah, I mean, there there are there are different elements there which differentiate it, but it is a lot of that. It's either one-sided or it's back and forth because we know they've had their, their moments. I mean, that that's where Damien came from. So, I mean, it... it it has happened at some point. It's just most of the time it's her expressing her love and him kind of spurning it. Yeah. So 
Yeah, there's definitely a difference there, and at least they were able to do it in a way that wasn't torturous and painful and uninteresting in this book. Yeah, the the only thing in this particular story with the relationship between Batman and Catwoman that I, that I didn't care for was the, the Batman obsessing over the romance, and it sort of distracts him at a time when he needs to be doing his best detective work. Like, there's a couple issues in this story after the, the first kiss where the story is progressing and at various points within the story uh you'll you'll see like a shadow image on on the background or uh, uh there'll be a mention from batman about him thinking about the kiss and thinking about catwoman and it based on some of the actions that he took and some of the events that transpired it seemed to be a bit of a distraction to batman at least in my opinion I agree, and that's one thing I definitely did not like, is it fell into the old trope of love is a weakness or love is a distraction. And it's painting, you know, Catwoman as a distraction, not as a, you know, that's all she serves as, is a love interest and distraction. Now, mind you, we usually see Selena Kyle with a lot of her own uh, abilities, and she she has her own, oh, what's the word? I know which word you're trying to think yes. of, and it's not in my head either. Oh, damn. Uh, uh, there's a word for it, and, and I'm sure I'll think of it here. Yeah, competency fun. came into head. That's not no, it. Not um, she 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 does her own thing. She has her own. Uh, yeah, I, we're <laughs> thinking of the same word. It's just not coming. <laughs> Dang it! All right, so yeah, if you can think of the word, email it to us because we are is dumb. But the uh, yeah, she, she's someone who has her own capabilities. But having her as a distraction kind of falls into that trope, that bad tropey you know area. Well, thankfully, it didn't fall all the way into that where she becomes either damseled or like a, a side part of the story. Like she's still doing what she's doing. Like she's still going after Poison Ivy and um, the other and helping Batman try and figure this whole whole uh, situation out. So it it didn't get quite as bad as it could have. But yeah, I agree with you that the. Um, distraction element was was not my favorite uh, part of this story but one thing i did like about the relationship is that batman reveals his true identity to selena so they're on the same page at that point you know that there are he realizes although he says it in a very weird way he realizes that he needs to and, and dick talks to, to him about it as well he needs to reveal everything to her if this is going to be anything that can last you know that it isn't just one kiss and then back back to status quo um, so I do like that part that he does bring her into confidence in order to make this work. So you don't have what it's another trope of the it's either the the secret identity or the hero identity kind of disappearing at, at key points and confusing the love interest because he doesn't want to reveal that or she doesn't want to reveal that to to the other person. Yeah, it, it's you know, I'm kind of glad that they did away with that and just kind of like went straight to the point. Although it does seem kind of out of character for him with someone who's as guarded as he is with his identity. There's, there's people on his side who, who don't know his identity. Yeah. I think there still are a couple. I um, mean, Huntress, I don't think knows his identity. Yeah. Huntress doesn't, but I think that might be the only one at this point um, because Oracle does that Dick, girl. Dick does. Cassandra figured it out a little while ago. Okay. Well, um, I forget which story spoiler. that was that we covered. Spoiler doesn't spoiler. Doesn't. I don't think she does. Yeah, I, I think she's still in the dark. I mean, she's kept in the dark about Robin's identity, too, and we've discussed that. Well, that was revealed to her by Batman. Yeah, we've yeah. definitely discussed that. But you're right. I don't think she knows Batman. So the, there are a couple people still who don't know, but the majority of the family at this point uh, does know. So the question is raised by Catwoman that this relationship may be manipulated 
as many of the villains were manipulated. So she's not sure that it's her own decision to like or to enter this romantic relationship with Batman. And that seems to bother Batman more than it does her. In fact, there's a point at the end of the story where um, it's it's frustrating Batman and he grabs her very tightly and, and causes her some pain and she breaks free and says, I don't really care one way or the other. We're either going to do this or we're not. So it definitely seems to weigh more on Batman than it does on her, but she did bring up the question. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. I don't like that he did grasp her tightly. That seemed kind of, you know, abusey and, and gross to me. It didn't... If it was intentional, yes. It seemed more like an accident to me, just just based on reading, reading the scene. While that's still not good, um, I think he realized that it was a mistake and, and obviously let her go as soon as... As soon as he did. I'd like to think that's the case, but I don't know. It felt unlike that to me. Okay. And once again, you know, maybe it's a matter of personal uh, experience and what have you. So it just struck us two different ways. But next one we have is a thesis on Batman and Bruce Wayne. And this is one that I was kind of struggling with is there are some interesting things the author brings up that I'm wondering if he's trying to to deliver us his interpretation of of this character batman and bruce wayne is we have the the lines from his childhood with tommy elliott telling him to think like his opponents if he wants to beat them uh i mean that's something we see later in the story uh reinforced because he's out thinking his opponents and that's something that's kind of you know a, a an old standard of batman is he's out thinking his opponents not just you know manhandling them Right, and and this is kind of filling in where that came from within the overall Batman mythos. Um, and also, uh, during the fight with Superman, Batman says that deep down Clark is a good person, but deep down he is not. I feel like this is contradicted by him being able to stop himself from killing the Joker, though. I, I don't think... I think you're, you're looking at it in way too black and white terms. I think there are so many shades of gray between killing the Joker and not killing the Joker to make him a bad person. He is fundamentally not... The big blue boy scout. He's fundamentally much more of a brutal character. He's someone who's willing to cause great physical harm to his opponents to get information to, to, in essence, torture or anything just shy of torturing for information. He's willing to do things way outside of what Superman is willing to do to, you know, bring justice. He's not willing to kill, and we know that at least, you know, usually he's not. Batman's not willing to kill, but he's willing to do things right up to that point of murder. So, okay. you know, he's not a good guy, whereas Superman is pretty much fundamentally a good guy. He's someone who's very much on the side of the law. He's very much an icon for his, you know, truth, justice, American way, blah, blah, blah. Whereas Batman is much more in the shadows, much more dangerous and dark. Okay, I, I can definitely see where you're coming from and how you're viewing it. I I view it a little bit differently. I feel that while we agree on the Clark, on the Superman part, that he is obviously a Boy Scout and way more restrictive on what he will do with the depths he will go to accomplish his, his goal. I feel like deep down Batman is also a good person. He's just, whether it's his limitations, not being a, a metahuman or whatever the case may be, he's willing to go further than, than Clark is to accomplish his goals, but he has his limits, which still keep him on the good side of things. I think it's a, it's a to, to pull out an old Dungeons and Dragons trope, it's the difference between lawful good and chaotic good. Yeah, lawful I, I good, would agree. You know, Superman is definitely lawful good. Batman is much more chaotic good. He's willing to go outside the, the bounds of law or goodness for the sake of good. And that was kind of the gist of what I was, was, was getting at, is that 
he doesn't see himself as a good, a good character, guy. but ultimately I think he actually is a good person. Sorry, yeah, but I think, not good character, good I, person. I think what we're getting here is not that he's saying he's a bad guy or even an anti-hero because he's not even an anti-hero. He's not Punisher. He's not Wolverine. He's not insert DC anti-hero um, here. Well, if you want to go within the Batman uh, family, Red Hood. Red Hood. Okay, yeah, perfect. Yes, Red Hood. No, he's not Red Hood, but he's definitely not a, the big blue boy scout. I yeah, think definitely. And this is, this is more Batman's view of himself than the, the reader's or writer's view of Batman. And the last thing that I, I wanted to bring up as far as the writer is Loeb ever so briefly brings up the balance that a Robin brings to Batman so, I mean, I'm not entirely sure what his thesis is, but I think he's trying to paint us a picture of who he believes the Batman Bruce Wayne character is. And, I don't know, maybe I just, just haven't spent enough time with this story to really kind of suss out exactly every part of that. I, I think he brought it up, but he had to drop it for constraints because it seemed like it was brought up and then pretty quickly, you know, not ever mentioned again. It's It might be something that's kind of developed over time through the character and through the history of the character of having a Robin being a, at least from like around the 80s to current where he's a darker character and he has a Robin to keep him from just going full, you know, anti-hero. Keep him from, you know, doing things that would, one, separate him from Bruce Wayne and basically he stops being Bruce Wayne and just does Batman full time and, you know, completely cuts himself off from, from society and just does Batman. And two, you know, keeps him from going super dark and, and you know, locking himself away and being unable to deal with his failures. I mean, we saw in this story that it was um, detective, or in this case, retired, I guess he's, is he professor? I think he's still a professor He's a professor at this point. Professor Gordon uh, pulling him back from the edge, but we have at other times seen Robin do that. So, yeah, it's, I think he's just pointing out things, much as we said earlier that this was a primer. I feel like that's part of him adding to the primer is like, hey, here's another thing that I can mention that relates back to the past of Batman if you haven't been reading it. I think, you know, that, as you said, that's, you know, this, that's what makes us such a great primer on Batman, a new Batman reader. This is a great introduction for him. But it's also not shallow is kind of also the point yeah, I, I'm yeah. kind of pointing pointing out there is that there is subtlety and depth to the story while also being, which is very difficult to do, while also being a good primer. So Introduction. For those of us who've read a good chunk of Batman, I mean, obviously not all of it, but a, a lot of it. What, this you haven't story, read the 1940s Batman books, John? I've read a couple. Uh, fake geek guys, right? <laughs> Ugh. I've, I have read a couple, though. Um <laughs> But I, I feel like this story is enough to keep long-term fans interested, but also really good at, at drawing in new fans. And that's a very difficult balance to strike. Oh, yeah, definitely. So we have some major takeaways from this story. Uh, first of all is that Harold's dead. Harold died. Aww. Aww. Riddler and Catwoman both know Batman's true identity. And there's a really great line at the end of this story. What where, good is a riddle if everyone knows the answer? Exactly. Yeah, that was a great line. That was such a... And it fits with what the Riddler is that that would be enough to keep him from blabbing it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, Batman and Catwoman are maybe definitely in a relationship, maybe. Maybe, definitely, absolutely. And Harvey Dent is back as Harvey Dent, not Two-Face. Right, and I, I read um, Harvey's entry on uh, is either Wikipedia or DC Wikia that they generally match up pretty closely. Uh, and this lasts for a little while, and then um, 
Two-Face comes back, of course. I mean, Of course he does. I mean, come on. It's the nature of comics. But it is really interesting to see what in this story is sort of but not completely painted as a reformed Harvey Dent. I mean, he does some... Questionable. Que- yeah, very questionable, very Two-Face-like things in this story. But we're led to believe that he's on the way back to being D.A. Harvey Dent. So it'll be interesting, you know, to see how that kind of carries forward. Yeah. So, John, before go- we go into oh. our ratings, yeah, since this will be the last episode that both of us will be um, releasing, because we have one more episode before the new hosts take over, and that was me and Tobiah. We've already recorded it. It's uh, the next Gotham Central uh, storyline. So, Dylan, this is our last one together. Why don't you yeah. just uh, talk a little bit about? This podcast that we've been doing for two years uh, before we uh, jump into our rating. Here. Has it really been two years? Uh, just about. Just about two years. How crazy is that? Um, you know, this was definitely something that it was a really cool experience. And it was a great, uh, great chance to do some really cool things and really talk about Batman and dive in. It's been really fun. It's been a great honor to get to, you know, one, obviously we work together all the time, John, but to to get to share this with you and share a Batman fandom and a love of Batman and talk about some, something that we both love, comic books and Batman. And it's been just a great honor and great fun. Thanks so much to the people at, at thebatmanuniverse.net for giving us this opportunity and letting us take over the show for almost two years. Wow. And, you know, have have this great time and get to to spread our geekiness over it and, and make it something that we did and that we loved and in our own kind of way and share it with you guys, the audience, people who listen to this. Thank you guys so much for giving us a chance and listening to us and letting us geek out with you, you know, every month on Batman and bat books for beginners. So thanks guys. This has been awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. I second um, everything that, that Dylan said this, this really has been fun. It's been a nice dive into, I think, what is my favorite era of Batman. I mean, I, as I've said on a number of these shows, I absolutely love the family, and I love when the family is working together <laughs> and not uh, infighting, which uh, it seems to be there's a, a cycle of they work together for a while, they, they bicker and kind of move off on their own things, and then something brings them back together, and rinse, rinse, recycle, repeat. Um, and so this era has been one of my favorites to cover. Um, thank you to Dustin and the BatmanUniverse.net for letting us do this for two years, as, as Dylan said. And we are sure that the next host who will be uh, taking over in January will uh, continue on the tradition of Bat Books for Beginners and introducing people to really key stories within Batman's history and bringing them up to... Uh, Almost present day, because I believe this series is scheduled to end just before the new 52, so six years ago. So, you know, please, guys, if you like what we do, give these new guys a chance. Get Definitely give them a listen. Let them create this in their own image and make this their own, just like you let us make it our own. Exactly. Give them a few months to kind of get a feel for their style and then uh, see how you like it. And embrace them, guys. Just, you know embrace them embrace the change and embrace something new and they're going to do an awesome job i'm sure of it so let them do an awesome job and give them all the love and support you can all right that that's That's uh, happiness over yeah let's (laughs) let's get to a rating on this story all right guys so um as john said i i definitely i think i like this much more than john did 
And uh, <laughs> I mean, that being said, I still think that the one we covered earlier, the uh, Dead Reckoning, was a did a there's a different type of story. It's one I enjoyed a little more, but I still thought this was a really good story. And as we said, it both had the ability to be a primer and introduction to Batman for new readers. And something deep and interesting for people who have read Batman and are familiar with the character, uh, familiar with the family and stories, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I'm going to have to give this four out of five batterings. All right. Yeah, it should come as no surprise for people who've listened to us on here or on Arc Reactions that I generally am a little bit lower on everything give than it a Dylan. Chance, Ralph. But I, I did. I did enjoy this. I did enjoy the story. Please don't don't uh, misconstrue uh, my thoughts. It, there is. It is a masterwork in doing a primer and keeping old fans interested because there's been a number of times where I've run into, oh, we're going to retell the origin story for this character. All right, I can skip 20 pages or I can skip a few few books until it gets back to uh, something that I don't know. So this did a really good job of having those moments but not bogging down the story for old readers Um and introducing a new character, Hush, who we will see again. So I think I have to give it 3.5 out of 5 batterings because while there are things I didn't like, it's not particular to just this story. They're, they're kind of things within the Batman universe that I don't particularly care for. So I think this story did a really good job, and I think everyone should check this out. So what did you think of the episode? What do you think of uh, Batman Hush? What do you think of how John and I did over the entire course of uh, Bat Books for Beginners? Please leave a comment on the BatmanUniverse.net on the episode page. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the story, the show, or how we're doing. While at the BatmanUniverse.net, you can read in-depth comic reviews, listen to the other podcasts that they offer, and get all of your Batman news. It's a one-stop shop for all things Batman. If you like what we do... And would like to hear more of us. Our other podcast is Arc Reactions and it can be found at arcreactionspodcast.blogspot.com. And as we mentioned earlier, our final story will be Gotham Central Unresolved Targets with Tobias Panchin next month. All right, guys, the credits for this one are Batman 608 through 619, which ran from December 2002 to November 2003. And it was written by Jeff Loeb. The artist was Jim Lee. The editors were Morgan Donteville, who was the assistant, and Bob Shrek. Thank you guys for listening and uh, join us for our final episode next month.